where I want to start uh, by asking you a question. And the question I want to ask you is whether or not you've ever felt like an outsider, whether or not you've ever found yourself feeling like you're on the outside looking into a group of people that you love to be a part of. As many of you guys know, I'm a I'm an artist. I rap. And so there's some ways that I found myself being an outsider, though other people feel like an outsider because everyone wants to be a rapper because the rappers are the coolest people. I get to be in that group of people. But there's still ways that I found myself feeling like an outsider. Part of that reason is because I do music in a unique way. Not only am I a Christian, so I love Jesus, so I rap about Jesus a lot, but I also rap and it's hip hop. Hip hop is not typically known for its devotion to Jesus. And whenever I say that, people snicker because it's so obviously true. And so here's, here's the thing that happens as, as a rapper who often raps about Jesus. Christian music and Christian radio doesn't quite know what to do with artists like me because I'm too hip hop. And it scares soccer moms away. And old church ladies, it scares them away. So they don't want to play my music. Then you have like mainstream hip hop radio. They don't quite know what to do with me because I'm too Christian. And it just scares people away in general. So I kind of find myself kind of an outsider, somewhere in the middle where nobody really wants to claim me. But here's the thing that I've seen time and time again, is if there are certain kind of qualifications you can begin to meet, then people feel like they're forced to kind of recognize you. So, for instance, if you kind of chart here or here, then people feel like, okay, well, they've met these qualifications. Maybe now I'll pay them a little bit of attention. It was demon music before, and now we can think about it because enough people bought it. Or people think, ah, I thought they were corny before, but now that I've seen them on this magazine and this and that, then I'll give them a little bit of respect. I felt like an outsider and like I needed to reach some kind of qualifications and meet some kind of standards in order to be taken very seriously as an artist. This is not only in hip hop, though, where there are certain things you have to do in order to get acceptance and status. If you want to be, for instance, um, if you want to go to college, how about that? You have to have good grades, right? You got to meet those qualifications. You got to have good scores. And of course, you got to have good money. <laughs> if you want to be the president of the United States, you got to be born in the United States. You got to be at least 35 years old. And you also need to find a way to get good money. If you want to get married, you have to be at least 18 years old. Everything we think about in life, there's certain qualifications that you have to meet. But if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be saved by God, there are no extra qualifications other than sinner, and all of us meet that qualification. There are no extra qualifications that we meet. And what we'll see in this text in Ephesians 3 is that God will save anybody, and he can use them for his own glory. God can save anybody, and he will use anybody to show off his wisdom. And we'll see that in our text today, Ephesians chapter 3. So we're going to walk through it in three points. So why don't you go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 3. We won't read it just yet, but you can, already, you can go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 3. Let me tell you, as I studied this text this week, Ephesians chapter 3, it was really refreshing to me. It was a breath of fresh air to see God's unlimited saving power, right? And to see the unity that God has created among those who he saved because it feels, let me tell you why it was a breath of fresh air, because it feels so different and it sounds so different than the air we breathe in our world. It's so divided, right? That's so fighting right now. I, I read a, an article yesterday about Serena Williams and, you know, she continues to dominate 
tennis. She's amazing, all of those things. But this article was talking about the fact that every time Serena Williams plays, and even when she wins, along with those wins come a healthy dose of very racist and offensive comments that she'll see on social media, that she'll see from media, that she'll hear from fans. Even down to one fan screaming at her while she was out there. That's right. He hit it against the net like a Negro. People on Twitter saying she looks like a gorilla. People over and over again saying she has some competitive advantage because she's black and that's giving her the body she's had. Things like this happen. All, I mean, this is the world we live in. That even as she dominates in her sport, people still want to continue to give her the message that you don't belong here. This is the kind of divided world that we live in. So when I open up a text like this and I see that there's a God in the heavens who's not a discriminating God, a God who has no racial or cultural biases, a God who will save absolutely anybody, that's a breath of fresh air to me. And I'm praying that as we look in this text today, that's a breath of fresh air to us. So, so here in this text, Paul, he's going to begin to tell the Ephesians the stuff he's already said to them in chapter 1, all these beautiful things about being in Christ, these spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, what it means to be saved and raised from the dead and what it means to be made one. He's going to begin to tell them how that stuff leads him to pray. So this is how he begins in Ephesians 3, verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and he wants to remind them that he's been in prison for preaching Christ. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And as soon as he says that for the sake of you Gentiles, it's like a light bulb goes off because then he interrupts his thought. Right. You see that hyphen there in the text. So before he tells them what he'll pray about them, he feels like he needs to go on a little tangent. And our entire passage today, all 13 verses is a little tangent that Paul went on in the middle of his thought. If you don't believe me, look, uh, look at verse 14, chapter 3, verse 14. That's where he completes the thought. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. He starts it in verse 1, and then he goes on a little tangent. So this is almost like, I don't see me in but almost like Nick Sassy, who's a cop. Almost like if he was saying, and you know, let me tell you the reason why I try to help police the streets of Atlanta. And then he's like, oh, I mean, surely you know I'm a cop. And then begins to tell you his story of how he became a cop. That's what Paul is doing. It sets off a light bulb and he says, oh, maybe I need to explain this real quickly. So somebody might say, why in the world would we waste however long you're going to stand up there and preach looking at a tangent that Paul went on? And the reason is because this is inspired by God. And when it's inspired by God, even the little tangents and rabbit trails are edifying for our souls. Much more edifying than some of the rabbit trails you go on in conversations. I've talked to some of y'all, I know. So what is Paul then saying with his interrupted thought? What did uh, being in prison for the Gentiles bring to mind? This is what he says. Verse two, he says, um, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. He means surely, you know, about the the special task God gave me, the special job, the, the way that God has called me to be a manager or a steward of God's grace in Christ. That's what he means by administration, a special task God has given him. And he's saying God gave me that task specifically for you. Gentiles. And we talked a lot about Jews and Gentiles last week in chapter two. So as a little reminder, what does Paul mean when he says Gentiles? He just means not Jews, not an Israelite, not physically descended from Abraham, a.k.a. probably all of us in this room. In Genesis 12, God makes this promise to Abraham, as we know, to to make him a great nation. And God kept that promise and that his descendants grew and he delivered those people from slavery and he committed himself to them as their God. 
And even though God is the creator of all people, God said, I'm going to specially work with this nation, Israel. And he graciously gave his word to them and he made covenants with them and he made promises to them and he kept those promises to them. And he was gracious with them over and over and over again, not because God had some kind of racial preference, but because anytime God is going to be gracious to somebody, it's going to be because he just chooses to be gracious to them. And he just chose to be gracious to this nation, Israel. So in Israel's mind. The true God is the God of the Jews, not the many false gods of the Gentiles. God has given Paul a special mission for these Gentiles. So one thing we should stop and recognize as Paul says this is that God is the one, Paul being an example for us, God is the one who should give us our marching orders. God is the one who should give us our job description. Paul says, God gave me this task. God is the one who defines what we do with our lives. There may have been things that we thought we would do with our lives as you were growing up and people saw you were gifted. I mean, people told me I was going to be a basketball player. They couldn't foresee that I would be 5'8". But there may have been all kinds of things that people said to you. They said, man, you are so gifted. I bet you're going to do this, 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 make a whole bunch of money. I bet you do this, this, and this, live in this kind of place. There may be all kinds of things that we assumed would be true about our lives, where we would live, what we would have, what we would do. But when God steps in the picture, sometimes he changes all of that. And we have to understand that he's the one who gives us our job description. And Paul is saying that God has done this here and everything changed when Jesus intervened. He'll tell us more about the special task in verse three. He says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, meaning just earlier in the letter. And reading this, then you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Now I want you to stick with me because this is a dense text and he says lots of stuff that doesn't immediately pull stuff up for us. So we're going to kind of walk through it to think about what he's saying. Paul is saying that God has revealed something to him. He calls it a mystery. And when he says mystery, he doesn't mean like a murder mystery. He doesn't mean, you know, something that we all need to investigate. He means just what he says, that there's something that was true that God planned to do that he hadn't revealed before, but that now he has revealed. Right. God. And I hope you understand that anytime we understand the truth about God, it's not merely discovered. It has to be revealed. God has to reveal himself to us. And he's saying God has revealed this to his special prophets, his holy apostles and prophets, his special messengers. When he says apostles and prophets, he doesn't mean apostles so and so down the street and prophets so and so down the street on the other side. He means these special apostles and prophets, the ones who've written the scriptures that we have that he's given the truth to. And I think it's important for us to recognize that Paul doesn't just say, hey, I just chose I was going to do this. So I just came up with this message. He's saying God is the one who's revealed this to me. And there's a uniqueness to that. What God has revealed to these apostles and prophets. And in verse six, he tells us exactly what this mystery is. So if you're saying, Trip, I'm confused. Trip, this is strange. What is Paul talking about about this mystery? He tells us very clear in verse six. So there's no confusion. Verse six, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. And that's the mystery. That's the truth at the heart of the task God has given him, that God is no longer working to save just in the nation of Israel. That non-Jews can be saved too without becoming Jews. And and that reason, what, what God has revealed to him, that revelation should make us rejoice because most of us in this room are non-Jews. 
And that doesn't come as much of a surprise to us because we're used to thinking about God as this God who who saves all. But it should strike us as incredibly gracious because God doesn't have to save anybody. I mean, the reason it should make Gentiles rejoice is because the way that God worked in the Old Testament is almost like, you know, when you hear about somebody that's incredibly rich that has billions of dollars. What is the first thing that comes to your mind? Don't lie. You think, man, if he just gave me a million right now, he could write me a check for a million and it would not even he wouldn't even know. It wouldn't even bother. Right. So what if somebody like Bill Gates, for instance, said, you know what? I'm so generous that I'm going to give a million dollars to the to to everybody in a certain neighborhood. And I'm going to choose a few neighborhoods in Atlanta. And he chooses a few neighborhoods in Atlanta to give a million dollars per household. And I believe he could do this very easily. Maybe someone should send him the recording of this sermon. (laughs) But then you find out it's not one of your neighborhoods. You probably be disappointed. But then later on, you find out that he is expanding it to every household in the country, you would do a little praise dance right now. Right? Because you would think, man, none of us deserve this million dollars, yet he's freely given it. And it used to be this little group of people, but now he's expanded it to all of us. This is like what God has done in Christ. Well, God does not have to be gracious and save any sinners. And he used to work with this particular nation, but now God has been so gracious as to say, I will save any and any and everybody from any and every background if they'll just believe in my son Jesus. This truth should make us rejoice because God is freely giving riches to sinners like us who don't deserve it. Paul is saying, God has called me to be the one who gets to proclaim this to Gentiles like you. So this is how it is with grace. Anybody can be saved. There are no longer any boundaries whatsoever. God will save anybody. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile or white or black or Latino or Asian or Samoan. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you're somewhere in between. It doesn't matter if you're cool or you're nerdy or if you're nerdy and you think you're cool. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're educated or not. It doesn't matter if you're able-bodied or not. God will save absolutely anybody. And that's really good news for sinners like us. One thing that's clear, even from the text we read earlier in the service, is that this isn't God changing his mind. It was God's plan all alone to save people from all nations. So he did work with Israel for a time while making clear he would somehow bring in the nation. So what's new, what hadn't been revealed before, is not that God wants to bless people from all nations. What's new is the way that he'll do it, and that's through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. So for this reason, that God will save absolutely anybody. None of us should think that somebody is unreachable. None of us should ever make that assumption, right? There's nobody that you'll come across in your daily lives this week or last week or today that God can't save. Sometimes we assume that people are in such terrible sin that they're too far gone. Or that people are so hostile and against God that they're too far gone. Or that an atheist are too far gone. Or we assume this person is in such high status Right. My little gospel can never get so high to them. No, no. God will save absolutely anybody. That means that we as a church don't want to in any way accidentally send the message that God won't save people like you. We want anybody who comes in our church to understand God can and will save you. So this should make us want to check our hearts for any kind of prejudice or bias that we have. If there are some people who would walk into these doors 
and that we wouldn't want to offer them that gospel. We wouldn't want to welcome them in the same way. We wouldn't want to be friendly to them in the same way. And to send out that gospel call is a problem in our hearts. Because God will save anybody. And we want to be the kind of church that testifies to that in the way that we treat people, in the way that we love people, and in the way that we preach this gospel. God wants to advertise this inclusive message of the gospel, and we want to be billboards for that message. We want to take that message everywhere that we go. And so when God saves all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, he makes us one, which can sometimes make for some awkwardness and some strangeness in in community life. You've had conversations with people as, as part of a church before, right? And they're like, oh, what'd you do last night? He's like, ah, oh, I went to this concert. They're like, I don't know who that is. Or somebody says, yeah, yeah, I've been doing this, this, and that. And your cultural backgrounds are so different that it's hard to even have a conversation with one another. Right? So if it's up to us, we'll never have any kind of great unity among us because we're so different. There's so many things we don't have in common. But we see in this text that there's so many things that we do have in common. And is that God is the one that actually makes us one. He's the one who unites us. So look, look at verse 6. Again, this mystery is that through the gospel, here's the things we have in common. The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. He says we're heirs together. This means we inherit the same incredible gifts from God. The things that God passes down to his children, every single believer in Jesus, all of us inherit that together. Right? So it's not like a, a dad who has a will with all these material possessions that he, that he promises to pass down. But instead, God has this treasure chest of eternal and spiritual blessings that we all receive and there's much more to come. All of us get those. It says we're members together of one body. This means we're not these separate entities kind of functioning in the same place. That we're united in one body. That we, we shouldn't think of ourselves just as separate entities who gather in the same room. But we should think of ourselves as arms and legs that are connected to the same body with the same mission and the same head. As close as we could possibly be. Do you understand there could not be an analogy that would make us closer? We're arms and legs as part of the same body. He says we share us together in the promise, which means all of the things that Jesus has promised his people we share in. It's not distributed unleavenly, but all of us receive it. He might even be uh, uh, talking about the promised Holy Spirit that he talked about in Ephesians 1, that all of us receive, that all of us are indwelled by, and all of us share the blessing of receiving him. And that is amazing. We're unified in Jesus in that way. One thing that shows us is that there are no levels in Christianity. There's only one level. Now, of course, we can be more or less mature in Christ. We can be Christians for longer or shorter times, but there are no levels to Christianity. I I watched a, um, a documentary about Scientology, which was very interesting. It was very interesting. And in this uh, documentary, one of the things they made clear was that people who are part of Scientology, you can pay to get to certain levels. So you can pay more money to get higher up and to get more revelation, which, as I learned, becomes increasingly creepy as you get higher up. (laughs) People are like, I paid for that? That was strange. But I want you to know there are no levels in Christianity. Have you ever boarded a flight and before you board the flight they board all the special people? You're like, oh, you look at your board and pass it zone 99. <laughs> and they're like, okay, first you want to board first class. 
We want to board all the people who really matter in life. Board the super duper premium. And they just go on for hours and you're waiting for zone 99 to board. And then, of course, you know, these people who have these special statuses, they get special stuff. They, they get to sit in first class. They have a little more leg room. They get to board quicker. Their bags are free. They get free drinks, all of these things. And if you ever get status and you get upgraded and you sit there and you get to board fast, you feel kind of good about yourself. All right? Like now boarding premium. And you're like, oh, that's me. That's me. <laughs> and then you get on the plane and you sit. Say you got upgraded in first class. You sit in first class and you just watch the people walk by you to their coach seats. Let me get on orange juice, please. You know what I'm saying? Just feeling good about yourself. It's proud. Well, I want you to know there are no such levels in Christianity. There aren't different statuses that we can achieve where we get extra stuff. There's only one level. There's only one status. And all of us share together in those things. Right. We're heirs together. We're members of the same body. We're sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. All of us are at the same level. So if there's absolutely anything in your heart that assumes that you're somehow at some level of Christianity above other Christians, then you need to repent. Whatever it is that makes you think that the stuff that you've done, the mission trips you've gone on, the stuff that, you know, the people that, you know, anything that makes you think you're somehow at some higher spiritual level than other Christians, you need to repent of because it's a lie. And those are the kinds of things that can kill unity in a church, assuming different levels. But we're one with all of the same benefits. No statuses. I wonder if you're doing anything that gets in the way of Christian unity. The kind of unity that God is calling for. Well, we've received all the same things. And unity, as you've already seen, is a major theme in Ephesians. We talked about it in chapter 2. We're talking about it here. We're talking about it again in chapter 4. It's one of the major themes. Are you doing anything that hurts Christian unity? Are you gossiping? Are you withholding uh, bitterness in your heart? Is there unforgiveness in your heart? What kinds of things might you be doing that gets in the way of your relationships with other Christians? That gets in the way of the body being one? What kinds of things are you doing to work towards unity? Who that doesn't look like you or doesn't hang in the same places as you do you spend time with? You know, we have to be intentional about that. You know, it's like the lunchroom, all the black kids sat together and all the white kids sat together. It's like we both love Kanye. I'm going to hang out with you. And, you know, we can do that very easily in the church, just kind of gravitate towards people who like the same stuff we do. We need to intentionally work towards unity by trying to build very real Christ-centered relationships with people who are different than us in various ways. And as we see in this passage, there is absolutely no space for any kind of racial preference or bias in the body of Jesus. Jesus crushed that at the cross between Jews and Gentiles. He's crushed it at the cross between any of us. Let's work towards unity because Jesus will save anybody. And when he does, he makes us all into the same family. Amen. 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 There are no qualifications we need to meet. God will save anybody and he makes us one family. So God will save anybody, number one. Number two, God can use anybody. God can use anybody. There are stories that we can think of, of of people being used for unlikely things, right? People doing great things who you wouldn't have expected to. One example I was reminded of yesterday was, was Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass was a slave. And even though he was a slave, he ended up being one of the foremost uh, voices for, for abolition of slavery. 
Right. So even though he was a man, even though at the time it was illegal for people to teach black people to read in the South, somehow he ends up being one of the most eloquent spokesmen for the abolition of slavery and the dignity of man. It was coming from a a, a person who people didn't expect. And it made it all the more amazing people being used for unlikely things. Well, in a much different way. People may think of Paul as a very unlikely person to be used for the things that he was used for. And I'm assuming that those of us in this room who've ever been used by God, we feel like we're unlikely to be used. Listen to what Paul says. Verse 7. He says, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul says he's been made a servant of the gospel or the good news about Jesus. And if you know anything about Paul's past, then this is amazing because he was anything but a servant of the gospel. He was, in his own words, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. You know, sometimes we assume that we're the only ones who have a past. We assume that that pastor that we really respect has always been very wise, and that's why God used him. We assume that those old church ladies have always been very godly, and that's why God used them. But here we have even the Apostle Paul pointing out that he had a messy past, much messier than most of ours. I would assume much messier than all of ours. Because Paul, then known as Saul, viciously opposed the gospel. Not only did he not carry the gospel, he tried to kill the gospel. And he approved of it when servants of the gospel were killed. He was a vicious man. But God. And we talked about the power of those two words, but God, in chapter 2. Whatever kind of mess we were involved in, when God steps into the picture, he can erase it. So Jesus intervenes then, and he takes this murderous man, and he makes him a missionary. And you can read all about it in Acts 9. Jesus, he confronts him. Paul is like, who are you? He said, I'm Jesus, who you persecute, and he blinds him temporarily. And I want you to listen to this exchange. Uh, Jesus is talking to one of his disciples, Ananias. I'm going I'm to just read this to you. This is from Acts 9. This is what it says. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I mean, you see, because of Paul's past, how strange this was to Ananias, because Ananias was like, are you sure, Lord? I mean, do do you know who you're talking about, this guy? Because it was unexpected the guy would use him, using one of the most brutal opponents of the gospel to forward the gospel. It's almost like using someone from ISIS to stop terrorism. It just doesn't make sense. Unless, of course, the Lord intervenes and he does something incredible. So listen, whatever you were before 
in Christ Jesus, you are something new. Because there may be somebody who looks at you and thinks, really, Lord, that guy? Similar to how Ananias did. I know that guy. He used to party like this, or he used to act like this, or he didn't love Jesus like this. And often that's the voice in our own heads. But I want you to know your past does not qualify you from being used by God. Every single person who's ever been used by God has a past. But God dealt with that past at the cross and he makes us new and he can save anybody and he will use anybody. One thing we know from scripture is Paul's not the only one who's been made a servant of the gospel. Because by definition, every Christian is a servant of the gospel. Second Corinthians five, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That was God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against him. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That sounds a lot like what Paul was saying. God saved me and then he gave me this gift to proclaim the message. And if we're in Christ, we've been given the ministry of helping people be reconciled to God. And we do that through the message of the gospel, the very message that Paul proclaimed. Because when we were reconciled to God, when we were brought into the family, we were also brought into the family business. And that family business is, of course, saving souls. What does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? A servant is a helper. A servant is an assistant. A servant, a servant dedicates their time and energy. So a servant of the gospel gives their time and energy, their life and resources to assist and help spread the gospel. I want you to think about your past week. How much of your time, how much of your energy, how much of your resources went to the spread of the gospel of Jesus? If we are truly servants of the gospel, as God has called us to be, then surely there must be some. And if you haven't used any of your time, your resources, your energy for the spread of the gospel, my question would be why? Why not? We know we can't use our shortcomings as an excuse, right? What are the things that keep us from sharing the gospel with people? We want to think about those things. We want to fight those things. Paul says that this was given to him by the gift of God's grace, given him through the working of his power. That power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that God used to turn Paul into this servant of the gospel. So we can't use our shortcomings as an excuse. The power that raised Jesus is with us. And Paul goes on to say, although I'm less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me. God can use anybody for anything. So whatever second guessing you have in your mind, you should get rid of because God is not limited by us. And God's not limited by us because it's his power, not ours. The tool isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is the builder whose hand the tool is in. And God, being a master builder, can use messed up tools like us to build the most incredible things. In the hand of God, you can be used to do incredible things because it's his power and not ours. Yet still, we can be amazing at coming up for excuses about why we don't want to share the gospel with others. But the truth is, we will live as servants of something. If it's not the gospel, there's something else that we're forwarding. So we should really check our hearts on that. That's what Paul says in verse 8. He says, although I'm the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. And to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages was kept hidden in God who created all things. Paul describes his task as preaching to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. 
What does he mean by the riches of Christ? Well, Jesus is, as we've already talked about in Ephesians, rich in grace, and he's rich in mercy, and he's rich in love, and he's rich in patience, and he's rich in the inheritance he's going to pour out on his people. Jesus is rich with comfort that he's going to comfort his people with. And we could go on and on. And Paul is saying he gets to tell people about those riches and the benefactor who shares them. I mean, that's an amazing task. It would be like if Bill Gates was doing that and I got to be the one to deliver the news to people. I was like, hey, man, let me talk to you. Million dollars in your account right now. That would be fun to be able to do. I mean, if someone said that to you, you'd probably leave right now. I mean, that would be a good message to get to share with people. And yet, God has called us to be able to share that same very good message. We get to deliver good news. I mean, we don't need to worry about ourselves. Spurgeon said, others may preach the gospel better than I do, but they could not preach a better gospel. The good news is very good news. But you know, some of us, when we share the gospel, we don't share it like we're telling people good news. It doesn't sound like we're telling them about riches because we're very harsh and we're very severe and our brows are furrowed like this. Like we have very serious and sobering and only awful news to deliver to you. And if someone had to guess from the way we told them whether it was good news or not, they probably would not guess that it was good news. I was reading a book this week and uh, one of the characters gets converted and then he wants to tell people. And I thought this was a great example of how some of us are sometimes. So Aaron is the one who got converted. Cal is his brother. It says this. It was natural that the convert Aaron should work on Cal. First, Aaron prayed silently for Cal, but finally he approached him. He denounced Cal's godlessness and demanded his reformation. Cal might have tried to go along if his brother had been more clever. But Aaron reached a point of passionate purity that made everyone else seem foul. After a few lectures, Cal found him unbearably smug and told him so. And it was a relief to both of them when Aaron gave up and abandoned his brother to eternal damnation. That's how some of us are like people would rather us just leave them alone and give up. Right. Because we're so harsh about it. Right. We're zealous, but harsh and we're passionate, but we're pretentious and condescending. And if people had to guess if it was good news or not, they wouldn't. And that's not to say that we should leave out the hard parts, that we're sinners separated from God. But all in all, we're sharing a beautiful, joyous message and we should be joyful about it. Why are we harsh sometimes, though? Why why do we find ourselves being harsh sometimes? Harshness in our evangelism is usually a sign of self-righteousness and pride. We're usually harsh because we think that we're better than people, because we can't imagine the audacity of people to sin against such a holy God. And we would do well to remember that we need the same grace that we're offering them. Let's fight that self-righteousness. Let's fight that pride. And let's offer these riches of Christ to people in a joyful way. If the only thing you're doing is telling sinners that they're sinners, you're not evangelizing. Simply condemning people. That's not Christian evangelism. Tell them about the riches of Christ. Tell them what Jesus did about their sin. That's the good news. And we get to tell people that. As a church cornerstone, we want to be about evangelism. It's what God has called us to. There's so many good things that we can do and that we plan to do. But God has called us as a church mainly to make disciples. And that includes not only helping other Christians follow Jesus, but telling people about Jesus. 
And so we love this community and we love this city and we want everybody possible to believe in Jesus. So we are about evangelism. So whenever you come to Cornerstone, the gospel, Lord willing, will be preached because we want sinners to any sinner who comes in here who doesn't know Jesus. We want them to be able to say, that's how I can be saved. So if you're here now and you're not a Christian, I want you to know how you can be saved. We want you to know Jesus. Not so you can just join our church and tithe with us, though that would be nice. We want you to know Jesus because we want you to know Christ. Because we're separated from God because of our sins. We actually are. And we're under God's judgment because of our sins. But that we don't have to be anymore. Because when Jesus died on the cross, it was almost like there was a massive wall between us and God. And that Jesus at the cross bulldozes that wall and he reconciles us to God and we can know him. And you can know Jesus right now. I mean, you can trust Jesus now if you would turn away from your sins and believe in Jesus that he died on the cross for our sins. That when he rose from the grave, he was victorious over sin and over death and over the devil. You can know God now. And here's the amazing thing. He doesn't just bring you to himself. Then he makes you part of this family. This family who commits to love you and to care for you. The riches available in Christ are far greater than any riches this world has to offer. And I pray you would receive them by receiving Jesus even now. God will save anybody. God can use anybody. And finally, God wants to show everybody. And I'll try to make this point quickly. Why do you do the things that you do? Why are you, you going to go to work tomorrow? I hope you're going to work tomorrow. You'll probably go because you're expected to be there. Or you're on the, you're on the schedule for tomorrow. But beyond those very basic motivations, there are probably other ones, too, right? You want to provide for your family. That's how you make money, how you provide for yourself and your family. And maybe even over those, there are bigger motivations that you want to honor God or maybe some kind of professional fulfillment that you want. Well, in a similar way, God has many different motivations for the things that he does. So you'll see times in Scripture that talk about God saving us for our good, to be gracious to us and to love us. But what we'll also see in Scripture is that God has an even greater motivation for the things that he does, and that's his own glory. Right, so look at verse 10. This is what Paul says about God's intent with his plan to save. Verse 10, his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what we'll see here is that God didn't do this. God didn't save you just because of you. That God did save you to be gracious and loving to you, but he also did it for his own glory. Our moms told us the universe doesn't revolve around us. And scripture tells us that the universe does revolve around God. So God always does things not just for our sake, but also for his own sake. And and he does it here to show off his wisdom. The most interesting thing right here to me, though, is that he does it to show off his wisdom To a certain group. It says the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly realms. The rulers and authorities and the heavenly realms. It's clear from Ephesians that what he means by rulers and authorities and heavenly realms. He doesn't mean earthly rulers and authorities, obviously. He doesn't mean kings and presidents. He means angels and demons, spiritual rulers in the heavenly 
realms that he wants to show off his wisdom to them. Manifold wisdom means his multifaceted wisdom, that there are lots of angles to that wisdom and that God did this in order to show that wisdom off to them. And often when it talks about these rulers and authorities, it means these demons, these enemies of God who work against them, almost like God has defeated them in Christ. And now he wants to rub it in their face through the church. And it's not wrong for God to do this. It is good for God to say, I'm victorious over you because I'm God. The greatest good in all the universe is the glory of God. And it's a good thing for God to declare his own glory, even to those he's just defeated. It's not sinfully proud of God. It's good of God. It's righteous of God. It's God affirming all that's good and true in the universe. And until we understand that all of creation is about God, though we get to benefit and God loves to be gracious and loving to us, until we understand that, we'll never understand texts like these, that God did it to show off his wisdom to the heavenly rulers and authorities. Not only that, we'll never be able to make sense of life at all if we think that God does everything just for us. We'll never be able to make sense of our suffering, right? Why would I ever suffer if it's all about me? But if we understand that God does have a bigger picture in mind, that he is doing bigger and better things, we'll understand that God, uh, he will save anybody and he can use anybody, but he does it all to show off his wisdom. God wants to show everybody, right? God's not discreet about how we say. God wants everybody to know, and it's good for him. To do so. You notice he says that it's through the church that his wisdom is shown off. Through his gathered people, all those God has saved, even through local churches like this. So I want to encourage you. This is not me saying you must be a member of Cornerstone, but I want to encourage you not to ignore God's people. Because ignoring the church is clearly from this passage ignoring God's plan to show off his wisdom. That's how God has planned to do it, is through the church. So we want to join churches and we want to value the things that God values. We want to help show off God's manifold wisdom. Verse 12 tells us exactly what it is that God is showing off in him and through faith in him. We may approach God with freedom and confidence. God wants to show off that even though we were sinners against him, we now get to approach him with freedom and confidence, which is a lot to say for folks like us who shouldn't be able to approach God at all. A quick encouragement for you this week. As you approach God in prayer, as you approach God as you read the scriptures, I want to encourage you, do not be timid about it as if God doesn't love you. If you know Christ, you can approach with freedom and confidence. It's not humble and and noble to be timid as you approach God if you're a Christian. It's proud and it's insulting to the sacrifice of Jesus. He died so we can approach God with freedom and with confidence. And I want to encourage you to do that this week. Don't be afraid to go to God and ask him for things he's called us to. Just let scripture inform those things. Don't be afraid to go to God and ask for comfort. Don't be afraid to go to God and ask him to save your neighbors. We get to go to God with freedom and comfort. And Paul closes the passage with verse 13 saying, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul is basically saying, hey, keep the big picture in mind. In the same way that the big picture is God showing off his manifold wisdom. Paul's saying, hey, don't be discouraged because there is a bigger picture. Yes, I'm imprisoned. Yes, I am suffering. But don't be discouraged because it's through my suffering that God has brought you glory. 
Through my suffering that God has given you eternal life. Through my suffering and proclaiming this message that God has blessed you so richly. As Christians, we never have to remain discouraged because there is a very big picture that should be an eternal encouragement to us. There is always a hope of glory, a promise of glory that lays before us. So that anything that stands in its way, we know that God will If not right now, eventually move out of the way. If not in this life, in the next life, move out of the way. We never have cause to remain discouraged because of the glory promised to us in Jesus. So I want to encourage you this week to find great joy in the gospel of Jesus and the good news of God. That he will save anybody. That he can use anybody, even us. And that in his wisdom, he wants to show everybody. There are no extra qualifications we have to meet to be saved or to be used or to be shown off. They'll do it for all of us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for speaking to us from your word. God, and we pray that as we go, Lord, that we wouldn't forget these things. We're so forgetful. But, Father, we pray that even after this service, we'll talk about it, that we'll write it down. We'll go back to our notes, Lord, that your word can continue to bless us. And, Father, we pray you would unify us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.